You know, it was, uh, I think, about a year ago that uh, some friends of ours and us got together and felt prompted to start a small group together. And so we've been meeting now for about a year. I think we started with, what, three couples together and then have added several. I think we have like 12 or 14 people now with us. And uh, it's been a great time. We meet together on Tuesday nights. And I'm recalling one particular small group gathering that we had. I think it might have been last fall or early part of this year where it seemed like everybody came in really weighed down with something. Just life stuff, you know? With some, it was their work situations. With others, it was what was going on with their children and their families and, and just other stuff. And so we came together like we do every Tuesday night, and we enjoyed some wonderful refreshments. And we came into the living room and, and sat in a, in a circle there. And uh, Jay had one of his corny icebreakers that we used, and it kind of got us talking and laughing about whatever it was all about. And uh, we popped a CD in and sang some worship songs together, which was uh, a wonderful thing. And then we, we looked into God's Word together. And then, as is our custom in our group, we uh, divided up men and women for a prayer time. And of course, the women always get the premier location in the house because we love our women. And the men went to wherever we went to. And we, as we sat down in that group of, I think it was maybe four or five men that night, the guys started to unburden themselves with everything they were feeling, all of the weights and the pressures that were going on in their lives, and, and, and we just decided, Let's just, we're going to pray for one another. And so we started to pray for one another. I think that night we prayed for the guy on our left, you know, what he had shared. And what I thought might be a 10 or 15 minute prayer time, that night turned into like a 30 or 40 minute prayer time. And we were just pouring out our hearts to God. We were lifting up our brother's beseeching God, you know, work in this situation, come to the aid of my brother, work in their family, work in their job situation. And when we were done, we looked up and it, we just felt lighter. <laughs> like the, the weight and the stuff that had been weighing down on us was like we were coming along and shouldering, helping to shoulder those burdens that each of us had. And I remember driving home with my wife that night and, and I looked at her and I said, you know what, everybody needs that. Everybody needs that experience of gathering with a group of people who care about you, who you care for, who know the Lord, who know how to pray, who know how to support and encourage and come alongside. I said, I just, I just think everybody needs that. And I stand here today and look you in the eye and I, I, I say, I believe you need that if you don't have it. I need that. And you, I want you to know up front that I'm going to be encouraging you today to get connected to a New Life small group if you are not yet connected, and if you already are, to really pour yourself into that. You see, because if I'm not careful, I can begin to think that this, this gospel thing, this salvation thing, this Jesus thing is all about just me. And it's about, you know, me getting saved and me living a Christian life and me going to heaven when I die when actually the gospel calls us into community together, into a family, into a family. And so we've been working off this diagram in this series, haven't we? I hope you're not getting tired of seeing it yet, where we have uh, what I call the gospel-centered church or the gospel-driven church, and that's a church that's seeking to keep the gospel of Jesus at the center, the center of church life, front and center, in the spotlight in all of our activities and ministries, all of our teachings that's going on everywhere, Jesus Christ and Him crucified at the center of that. 
that wonderful message that the Son of God traversed galaxies from heaven to earth, came, born of a virgin Mary, lived that beautiful life that none of us could ever live. He lived it for us, didn't he? He fulfilled the law on our behalf. And then he laid down his life voluntarily. He gave himself, allowed himself to be executed like a common criminal, not for his own sins, but for the sins of us. And then victoriously came out of the grave on that third day as the living Lord ascended back up into heaven where he ever lives, the Bible says, to make intercession for his people every day. That's what Jesus is doing right now. That is the glorious gospel message. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ. The restoration and reconciliation of all things to God one day and a new heaven and a new earth comes through Jesus Christ and particularly what he did on the cross. That's the message we want to keep at the center here in this church. And then last weekend we saw how that message shapes the identity of God's people. And I've heard so much feedback from some of you and from ministry leaders who've said to me, Steve, that message, how the gospel shapes our identity, how we see ourselves is so vital, so crucial at New Life these days. That the people of God and the people of New Life need to get a, a deeper, clearer understanding of who we are in Christ. And so we talked about that, that, that we who believe the gospel are saints and sons and daughters of the Most High God, reconciled, redeemed, restored, forgiven. All of those wonderful things that the Bible declares to be true about us. Gospel-shaped identity. And we need to walk in that. And some of you have actually taken that little sheet I gave you last week, and I've, you told me you pasted it on your bathroom mirror so that when you look at yourself in the morning, you're reminded of who God says you are, not who you look like necessarily. <laughs> And so the gospel shapes our identity. Today I want to talk with you about how the gospel shapes our community. Because the gospel not only declares who we are in Christ, the gospel calls us together into a community and then it shapes the community that we're in. And it shapes, into, it, shapes it into what we might see as a family. You heard the term the family of God? We are Family, the gospel forms a family. God has always wanted a family, and that's what he's doing through the gospel. And I got to thinking, well, what would a church family look like that's being shaped by that gospel message? What, what characteristics would be present? What qualities would be present in a gospel community? Even apart from looking at the scriptures, just logically thinking, and I got to thinking, well... In a community that's being shaped by the gospel, I would think that humility would be present, wouldn't you? That, that a gospel-shaped church, a gospel-formed church family would be full of humility. Why? Because the gospel tells us that we couldn't do anything to save ourselves. That in, in that sense, when it came to being reconciled to God, we did not have what it takes. We needed an, a rescuer to come in from the outside and save us from our sins Jesus. And so we should rightly be a humble people. I would think that in a gospel-shaped community like this, that there wouldn't be a whole lot of, you know, proud bragging and arrogant self-promotion. You know what I'm saying? 
that people would not be thinking more highly of themselves than they should and, and wouldn't feel the need to like put others down so that they could feel lifted up because the truth is we've all been lifted up by Jesus out of the pit. And so I can really easily see humility taking root in a, a community that's being formed by the gospel. And then it wasn't a stretch to, to think about something that arises from humility and that's gratitude, like gratefulness. A grateful people. And again, this is apart from even looking at the Bible, just thinking through, what would, I, what would that kind of church look like? Well, of course, believers are those who realize that everything that we have, we have received, right? What do you have that you have not received? Nothing. Everything. The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights into our lives. Every good thing you have, every good thing I have. And the truth about us is that we're getting way more than we deserve. We're getting way more than we deserve. And so in a gospel-shaped community, I think that gratefulness would be on the rise and things like whining and complaining and demanding our rights, that those things would be, would be fading in a, in a community where the gospel is dropping from our heads to our hearts. Wouldn't you? Humility, gratefulness. And then I thought, well... Certainly generosity would be present because the Bible tells us that Jesus poured himself out for his people and those who have been affected by that would realize that his heart is growing within us and, and we would want to increasingly pour ourselves out for others. And so I could see generosity, even radical generosity and reports of that growing in a church that's being affected by the gospel. And then I thought more and I thought, you know what else would be present? transparency, like a, an increasing willingness to, to open ourselves up to each other and be honest and revealing about our flaws and sins and faults and shortcomings. And you say, that sounds really risky. How in the world does the gospel of Jesus produce transparency? And I say, well, just think about it for a minute. Think about it. The gospel tells us that Jesus Christ, our Savior, was put to open public shame to pay for our sins, right? I mean, he was hanging on this cross basically naked, just having been beaten to a pulp. And that's what it took to pay for our sins. So our sins must be really bad. I mean, a little slap on the wrist wouldn't cover our sins. It had to be what he endured. And that tells me that our sins must be really bad, but Jesus Christ paid the full penalty for our sins, took our sin, took our shame, paid for it all fully. It is finished, done, complete. Therefore, I don't have to hide all that anymore. Does that make sense? I don't have to try to keep it concealed, and make sure you only see the best side of me and keep my image all nice and polished for you so that you're impressed by me. I don't have to do any of that. The gospel sets me free. I am free to put all of my stuff out there in front of you because it's all been paid for. And yeah, it's really bad. One pastor I know says, you know, when new people come into our church, I like to look at them and say, I know your secret. <laughs> you're messed up like the rest of us are. We all are, but the truth is the worst about me has already been put on public display through Jesus' public execution. My sin was bad. His grace is wonderful. I don't have to conceal and hide anymore. So transparency, 
Yeah, here's who I am. Here's what I've done. Even last night, I'm laying it out there because of Christ. And I thought more. I think I thought, well, there's some other things I think would be present increasingly in a gospel community. I think grace and acceptance and forgiveness would be on the rise, wouldn't you? I mean, it's the gospel of grace where God accepts sinners in Christ because of Christ's merit. So therefore, it just makes sense if we've been the recipients of grace that we would be extending that grace to others. And so when I'm in that setting where I'm sharing my faults and flaws and foibles with you, I wouldn't expect you to to wag your finger in my face and say, shame on you, you're a sorry excuse for a Christian. I mean, I would expect to receive some grace knowing that you've also received grace. God gives us grace. Grace and acceptance and forgiveness. Forgiveness. I would think that grudges would be decreasing and declining in a gospel-saturated church. And forgiveness would be on the rise because we have been forgiven so much. And I would think that in, in a church that's being shaped by the gospel that there would be lots of sharing and serving going on, wouldn't you? Lots of sharing and serving. After all, Jesus Christ, his sacrifice was the greatest act of service known to mankind. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. And so in a congregation where the heart of Jesus is growing in us, wouldn't you think there would be regular reports of people serving one another, finding out what each other's needs are, how can I help, how can I be a blessing to you? surprising people with special gifts and cards and notes and emails and texts and just this kind of beautiful interaction going on based on the common love that we have for Jesus Christ and his heart growing in us. Lots of sharing and serving going on. And then I thought about this. Wouldn't there be, in a gospel-shaped church family, wouldn't there be reconciliations happening like a lot? Isn't the gospel at its core about reconciliation through repentance? Isn't that at the core of the gospel? And so I got to thinking, yeah, well, yeah. In a, in a gospel-shaped church, you would hear reports of reconciliations happening. Like, you know, spouses who were estranged from each other coming back together and siblings who hadn't talked in years, you know, being reunited and parents and children who were at odds coming back together and friends who'd had a falling out and there would be reconciliations because that's at the heart of the gospel and we're soaked in the gospel. That we would not be content to leave things as they are, distant, angry. I think back through all the conversations I've had not all of them, but many conversations I've had with people in my office over the past few years and how many times I've looked at them and said, you know, okay, you're at odds with this person over here. You haven't spoken in a while. The gospel is about reconciliation. It's, we say we believe it, right? We say that God has done what it took to reconcile us to himself and to each other. Do we believe that? And so many times I've looked at someone and said, you know, you gotta have the hard conversation you got to have it. How can I feel better about this? I don't know any other way than to get together with that person face-to-face. Like the scripture Joe read earlier, go to them. 
And I've looked at so many people and said, Jesus said that for a reason. He said, go to them. Not send a text, not send an email, not write a letter. Go to them. Because you know how this works, don't you? When you're at odds with someone and, and you're distant and there's no contact, uh, no contact with them, don't they grow more monstrous in your mind? Don't they? Oh, man, that person's horrible. But then when you go to them and you're sitting with them, you know, they seem more human again. There's a reason Jesus said, go to them. So, I don't know how much I'll say this morning that will be memorable, but this might be memorable. Write this down, please. Conflict is inevitable. Misery is optional. Reconciliation is possible. That might be the only gem you get from the sermon today. <laughs> Conflict is inevitable. Oh, my goodness. Some Christians are... They, they fall apart when something happens because they think, well, good Christians should never have conflict. Wrong, wrong. We're human. We live in close quarters. We're not in the flesh, but the flesh is still in us. You will have conflict. It's okay. The world's not coming to an end. You didn't lose your salvation. It happens. Conflict is inevitable. I would be worried about you if you never had any conflict. because That means you're not in close enough quarters to create some friction. Conflict is inevitable. Misery is optional. In the aftermath, in the wake of conflict, you don't have to live in misery. You can if you want. Some people love living in misery. It's like a friend. I love being miserable. Can I share my misery with you? No! (laughs) Misery is optional because reconciliation is possible. I believe that because the gospel tells me that. Reconciliation is possible through what Christ has done for us. You can be reconciled to your sister. But here's a second thing to write down. You've got to have the hard conversation. You've got to have it. You've got to go to them. You say, well, they should come to me. Well, maybe they should. Have they? No. Then you go to them. Whoever realizes there's a problem, basically, is the one who should go. Go into the tunnel of chaos with that person. But that doesn't feel good. I know it doesn't feel good. But apart from that face-to-face, reconciliation is not going to be worked out, and the gospel won't have the effect that it was intended to have. There are some of you, you know it. There's a hard conversation. You've been avoiding it. You don't want to have it. You want that person to come to you. Go. Go to them. I I would think that reconciliation would, reports of reconciliations would be just growing in a church soaked in the gospel. You know, as I got to thinking about those things, humility and gratefulness and generosity and service and caring and sharing and acceptance and grace and transparency and reconciliations and All of that, just thinking about like, yeah, logically that makes sense. I wonder if it's in the Bible, and when I read the Bible, I see it. Surprise, surprise, it's all there. That passage that John read earlier from from the account of Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, remember that? He's washing their feet. I really believe when you look at that account of what happened, that one of the things Jesus was doing is he was giving a preview of the kind of gospel community that he was going to die to create. Right there in that upper room, there was humility, 
There was service, there was generosity, there was transparency, there was giving, there was sharing a meal together. All of these things we've just described were present in that room that night. And I think what what Jesus was saying is, this is what I'm going to die to create. Gospel community among my people. And he basically looked at them and said, don't settle for anything less. Don't settle for anything less than that. When I looked in the scriptures, I see this over and over and over again, these statements about humility and gratefulness and transparency and grace and acceptance. Listen, listen to the word of God. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Therefore, let us be, what does it say? Grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. James wrote, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There's the gospel connection. This is how God treats you in Jesus Treat others this way. You say, where is transparency in the New Testament? How about this, James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You were called to freedom, brothers. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I love this verse. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. When I look at a description of the early church, and so many people have called us to to look at the early church and mimic the life of the early church, what did it look like? Was it a gospel community? Notice the description given in Acts 2. And all who believed were together. They had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing, to the, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know what? Gospel community is attractive. It's appealing. When people see it, there's something in their hearts that hungers to be a part of that. I want that. Acts 4 continues the picture. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. These are pictures of gospel-shaped community. Do you see that? And do you see how these things flow from the gospel? I mean, we could all say, oh yeah, these are good traits to have, humility and generosity and gratitude and so forth. But, but what I've come to see is these, they all arise from and spring out of an understanding of the gospel of Christ, of Jesus. 
Listen, Jesus died not just so you could go to heaven. Although that is true. He died in order to redeem a people for himself, a covenant community whose lifestyle and interactions would reflect his own heart. Listen to the description, Titus 2, 14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. King James says, a peculiar people. That's you. That's me. Oddballs for Jesus. Purchased by his blood. You know, God has always wanted a family. God has always wanted sons and daughters. He's wanted a family. He's the father. Jesus is our older brother, the good, true, better older brother. And Jesus died to secure that for his, for his dad, for his father. It's a beautiful thing. Well, let me see if I can bring this a little closer to home, okay, for us. Um, I want us to think for a couple minutes about church membership. Church membership is a notion that has fallen into some disfavor in some circles these days. Like, you know, and there's some people in the younger generations who say, you know, isn't that so outdated and archaic? Do we have to do church membership anymore? That's so 1800s. <laughs> and, um, you know, certainly our culture at large has shifted away from, um, to some extent, from commitment to covenant, Right? like in marriage relationships and so forth. And so being committed to something and loyal maybe isn't as culturally cool as it once was. So what about church membership? You know, some people challenge, is it even biblical? Is that, is that in the Bible? My contention is it's, it's almost assumed in the Bible. It undergirds, a covenant undergirds everything you read in the New Testament. Think about a flock for a minute. The, the, the metaphor for a church, one of the most popular metaphors is shepherd and his sheep, right? How does a shepherd know who's in the flock? Like any sheep that happens to wander around or wander into the proximity? No, sheep were numbered, counted, and marked, tagged. <laughs> there was this identification. Remember the shepherd who would leave the 90 and 9 and go after the one? That's because he knew there were 100 in the flock. He knew who was in and not in. It undergirds everything in the New Testament. At New Life, we've always believed in the concept of church membership. We've called it different things. In more recent days, we call it partnership, ministry partnership. That seems to be a more biblical phrase for it. We've always believed in that for 27 years. When we first started, I taught our new members class in the hallway at Middle School West down here many years ago. I was only four at the time, but... <laughs> We've always believed in it. We've called it by different names. Um, to help people understand our, our concept of church membership, we've always offered a class that people would take who are interested. Um, it's been called by various and sundry names through the years. Right now it's called Discover New Life. Pastor Claude leads out in that class. And it just, if you take it, and we ask everybody to take it, if, if you have any interest in new life at all, take this class because it'll help you understand who we are and what we're all about. But I want you to know that the newest version of the Discover New Life class, you're in right now. 
In fact, that's what the last few weeks have been, and, and next week we'll finish out. And so if you're here today and you've caught the other two, you could safely say you have completed three-fourths of the class requirements towards becoming a ministry partner here at New Life Church. Or if you weren't here, if you listened online. If you should want to continue on in this process towards covenanting with this family, this covenant community, this gospel community, here's what's going to happen. You're going to take that class. You're going to go, and at some point, you're going to sit down with a pastor or a ministry leader, and they're going to ask you four questions and call for five commitments. You say, well, what are the four questions? Well, here's the first question they're going to sit down with you and ask you, and it's this. Are you saved? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Has there come a point in time in your life when you saw your sin, saw that you were separated from your creator, turned away from that sin, grabbed hold of Jesus as your savior? Are you born again, saved, reconciled, redeemed? The church is a community of the redeemed, right? Saved believers. And so that's the first question. Sometimes in that time, the person will say, well, I don't know that that's really true of me. And we always give them an opportunity to hear the gospel and confess Jesus is Lord right there in that, in that time. Have you been saved? Second, have you been baptized by immersion in water since that salvation experience? And of course, baptism is that badge of salvation, right, that Jesus called all of his followers to put on and to wear proudly. I, I'm a believer. I confess Jesus as Lord. He's my Savior I've gone down into the water in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection to walk in a new life. You saw some baptisms last weekend, live and on screen. And we have that every month here at New Life. It's a wonderful thing to go public with your faith in Christ. Grace will come to you in that moment. So have you been saved? Have you been baptized? Third, are you in substantial agreement with this church's statement of faith? You say, what's that? That's a document that contains in concise form what we believe about God, the Bible, Jesus, sin, salvation, man, the church, the end times. And so as a church coming together as a family and community, we need to be united around something. And this tells us what we're united around, the truth that we see in God's word. And so we ask all of our prospective members to Say, yeah, I'm in agreement with the main points there of that. Yeah, we, there may be some minor points that we're not totally in sync on, but the major things we are. Fourth question, and this is the one that, that makes church membership distinct from being uh, a member of a country club or the VFW or a sports team, and it's this. Will you be accountable here? Will you agree to be accountable to your spiritual leadership, whether that's elders, pastors, small group leaders, so that you're walking close to Jesus Christ. That's a distinctive that separates members from non-members. Members have said, I want to be held accountable. I invite that. I give permission to my spiritual shepherds and overseers to hold me accountable so that if I start to veer off the path in my lifestyle or in my doctrine, what I believe, I'm saying, come to me lovingly. Approach me with love, but with firmness. Call me back to the fold. I want that in my life. That's a church member distinctive. That lets us know who wants accountability. So those are the four questions you'll be asked, and then you'll be called to five commitments. And these days, I like to view these as family commitments because that's what you're doing. You're committing 
to being part of this church family. You say, well, what are those commitments? Number one, to worship together with the whole family on weekends. Like to come together like we are right now. And getting in that rhythm, like every seven days, making this a priority, I need to be with the whole family, looking at Jesus Christ, worshiping Him, hearing from His Word, and then responding back to Him. And, and we ask, as we sit in that interview time, we say, will you make a commitment to this? It's not like I can't ever miss ever, you know, in the history of the world again. That's not what it is. But it's, it's a priority. You know, I, I don't say, well, if there's nothing good on TV and there's no sports going on, and if I don't, you know, then I'll be there. No, no. You wrap other things around this priority. I will worship with the whole family. So that's the first commitment. The second one is to connect weekly with a smaller family that we call a small group. Yeah, to connect at that level too. Like, it's hard to connect with 500 people, right? But six, eight, ten people in a weekly, ongoing small group. And that's what Pastor Jay's video was about. And I gotta tell you, this is a great time of year to jump in. The fall, start of a new school year, new groups are forming. This, this um, concept he has of a getting connected group where you just show up on a Wednesday or Thursday night in the prayer chapel back here and, you know, experience group life. So that's the third commitment. Will you connect with a small group? Family. Is that the third or the second? Sorry. Third, will you gratefully serve in a ministry that supports and blesses your church family. We admit, we have a high view of church membership here, okay? We've raised the bar. In some churches, you can be a member and be dead, buried in the cemetery behind the church, still on the membership rolls. What good is that? Oh, yeah, we've got 14,000 members. Yeah, but half of them are dead. So we ask our members to serve. We say, hey, we're a family here. There's lots of needs. Come to the table. Offer your gifts to serve regularly in a family. Fourth, give. Give cheerfully towards the family's needs and towards the mission of the family. Um, yeah, I mean, give money. Give your resources. Give your finances to support the family's needs and the, and the mission of the family. We're, we're not apologetic about that. I just... Say to you, give as much as you possibly can to the greatest cause on planet Earth. Give. And then fifth, remember that there are people outside the family. You know, it's easy to get myopic and just think about us and me, and, and yet the fifth commitment calls us outside, doesn't it? Remember, there are people who are not yet in the family. Reach out lovingly to those outside the family and point them to Jesus. So those are the five commitments we ask every prospective ministry partner. And over the years, thousands of people have made those commitments and have become part of the New Life family for the season that God has them here in central Ohio. And we are grateful for that. We're grateful for that. If church membership is something that you are puzzled about or not sure it's biblical or just intrigued by. I've got a, a book I want to recommend to you today. A little, look at that, how thin it is. A little read called Church Membership, How the World Knows Who Represents Jesus by Jonathan Lehman. You can pick it up in our bookstore for a few bucks. Quick read, easy read, but deep, revealing the biblical 
basis and underpinnings for the whole notion of a covenant community where people are covenanted together with each other. I know a number of you are already members, ministry partners here. Some of you have been for a a month or a year, some for 20 years. I just wanted you to be reminded today of the covenant that we've made together with each other. Others of you are um, attendees here. You love coming on weekends. You like what happens. You love the feel and the vibe, and and you like being a part here. That's great. I wanted you to know that kind of the pathway to take the next step into becoming part of the church family here. And to some of you who've maybe been attending for, like, years, um, it's like the one guy said, you know, you've dated long enough, it's time to commit. (laughs) Like, you're here, you know, your heart's here, you're here, this is your church, you would say, this is my church family, but you haven't taken these steps, time to commit! Get in the game, become a covenant partner with the rest of us. Amen. Be countercultural, you know? Commit. All right. To sum it all up, the gospel of Jesus Christ was meant to shape our community together, how we relate to each other, how we interact with each other in the body of Christ in such a way that we look and act and feel like a family. You know, this church is my family. My family of origin is spread out all over the country. You know, we're thousands of miles apart. And yeah, I'm raising my family here, but I'm raising my family here in this church because this is my family, extended family. You are. And for many, many of us, that's, that's the truth. That's how it feels. It's what the gospel makes true about us. All right, I'm gonna land this plane. Let me give you three points of application that I wanna challenge you with. Number one, small group involvement. I've said this like eight times already, right? (laughs) We really do view small groups here as the primary setting where gospel community, what we've been talking about, gets worked out. There's things that can happen in that setting in somebody's living room with six or eight or ten people that can't happen here with four or five hundred people. Think of transparency for a minute. How easy is it to get transparent with four hundred people? No, but with six or eight or ten whom you trust, whom you love, whom you're in covenant community with, that becomes more doable, doesn't it? Here's who I am. Or think about serving, you know. Can you serve four or five hundred people? No, but you can serve a few people, and together as a group, you can serve others together as a team. So if you're not involved in a small group, consider it. I hope that you will. It's a great time, as I said, to jump in. Second, meet the family. If indeed the church is a family, then I would imagine that that here in this room right now are people that you don't know, family members that you don't know. In fact, look around just for a minute. Just look around, maybe make eye contact with some folks. Yeah, they're they're not bad folks. Meet the family. I remember when I was in college, somebody challenged me to meet a new person every day. And I'm kind of an introvert, but... I took that challenge, and I found that I could do that. I could meet someone new every day. Hey, I don't really know you. My name's Steve. What's your name? And just, and I'm not challenging you to meet somebody new every day, but you could meet someone new today, this day. You could meet, really, someone new every weekend. It's kind of why we did that corny name tag thing the last few weeks, so you could kind of get to know the names of the people who sit in your area that you like to sit in, and maybe get to know them a little bit. Meet the family. 
Step outside your comfort zone a little bit. Some of you are extroverts, no problem. I meet 10 new people every week, you know. Well, God bless you. <laughs> Some of us are not like you. It takes more effort. But you could meet one new person. There's a lot of grace here, you know. You can't blow it too badly. Hey, I don't, I don't think I know you yet. My name's Steve. What's your name? Try it. And then this last one, you may, might think this is kind of weird or whatever. Are any of you like spontaneous, impromptu? You just like to just kind of do, do things off the cuff? Okay. This last one, lunch on us. Find a fellow church family member or couple who looks like they could use some encouragement and take them out for lunch. Even if you don't know them. Especially if you don't know them. Say, well, okay, I'm intrigued by that, but I didn't bring my wallet or whatever. Or, you know, funds are kind of short. Not to worry. I hold in my hands an envelope full of $20 bills that I'm making available to you. If you will take someone out to lunch today, and it's lunchtime, right, coming up. So you go to Wendy's, you pay for your whole meal, their whole meal with that if you use the 99-cent menu. (laughs) Cane's, Jay Gumbo's, whatever. You know, if you're getting up into Outback or whatever, then... You're going to have to kick in some of your own funds, okay? But I encourage you to do this. Just after service, look around. Be all impromptu. Be spontaneous. Find someone. Say, I don't know you that well. Let's go out to lunch together. On Pastor Steve. Come up. Get a 20. Who can I I trust over here to give this to? (laughs) Lindsay. Lindsay, come on up. Would you mind hanging around for a few minutes after service? Would that be okay? Come on up. Come on up. There's like 20 20s in there, okay? So once they're gone, they're gone. But if you would commit, say, I'll take someone else out and pay for their lunch, and, uh, you know, some extra funds would help in that effort, go to Lindsay. She'll be right over here, and you can grab a 20, and it's on me, okay? So try that. Meet the family. There's always someone here on a weekend who looks like they need encouragement, okay? So just look around, and you might be able to bless somebody. All right. I know this has been a little bit different for today, but let's, let's ponder for a few moments what we've heard this morning and think about what our place is in a gospel-shaped community. Let's bow before the Lord together.